Romans chapter 1. I'm going through the book of Romans with the high school group, and I had the privilege of teaching this message last Sunday, and I thought to myself, I think I need that again. So I'm sharing it with you guys this morning. Um, And uh, I'm confident that in this service I'll get through the two verses, because I did in first service, but you know, no promises. We'll see how it goes. Verse 1 is a doozy. So let me read it to you guys. It's Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God." Paul was writing the book of Romans to a group of people whom he had never met before. So Paul had never been to Rome. He's writing this letter in part to tell them, it's my intention to come and visit you. I want to come see you. I'm going to be heading to Spain soon, and maybe I'll visit you on my way to Spain. So he's kind of announcing an impending visit. Um, But I also believe that Paul was writing this letter to make sure that the Romans had a a robust understanding of what the gospel is. What is the gospel? Why is the gospel necessary? What is the effect that the gospel has upon our life? Like, what does it mean when a person gets saved? What does it mean for your standing before the Lord? And finally, how should we live as a result? As a result of the work of God in our life, how should we respond to that? And so Paul takes really the first pretty much 11 chapters of Romans to discuss this is what the gospel is. This is the effect that the gospel has upon your standing before the throne of God. These are the things that, that um, should be in your mind as you think about this. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about that a bit. And, and it's not until you get to Romans chapter 12 that the, the focus shifts a little bit. And Paul begins to say, and here's how you live. Here should the response, this is what the response should be from your life as you consider everything that Jesus has done for you, how do you respond? And so he says here, verse one, first part of verse one, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, I beseech you. It's not a word that we normally use in our common English, is it? Like I didn't say this last week to Megan. Hey, Megan, I beseech you to get me a glass of water. You know, like I don't, I don't, I don't beseech people, but what does it mean? What's the, what is he talking about? Well, this word is actually a strong word. You can actually, in other places in the New Testament, it's translated as I beg you. I'm begging you to do this. I'm I'm strongly exhorting and urging you that you do this thing. It's not a command, but it is a strong exhortation and urging, and dare I say, begging that you do this thing. As you consider the Lord, he says, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, he's calling their minds back to many of the teachings that he's already covered in the book of Romans. He's calling their minds back to the mercy of God. And Romans 1 through 11, uh, I've studied this with the, the high schoolers already, but Romans 1 through 11, he's magnifying the mercy of God and the work of God. 
Like Romans 1 through 11 is all about this is what God has done for you. You were this way. You were sinners. You were dead in your sin. You were under the wrath of God. But God, he loves you. Even while you were still sinners, Jesus died for you. He made a way so that you could be forgiven and saved and welcomed into the household of God. Romans 1 through 11 is the work of God. And so he says, therefore, by the mercy of God, do this thing. I want to take just a minute and cover some things that Paul has already talked about in Romans. And um, I'm going to be throwing out a bunch of references in there. And so if you're uh, taking notes, then I hope you write fast because I'm going to go quick through this. He says in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's God, God's power to save us. In Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, he makes this point that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and yet we are what? Freely justified, made right, declared innocent by the grace of God. In Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, he talks about how, hey, we, we don't work to be saved. It's not our work that saves us. He says, and now to him who does not work, but believes on him, his faith shall be accounted as righteousness. It's not our work. It's a, I'll take it. I'll accept that, Lord. In Romans 5, verses 1 and 2, he says that because we're justified, we have peace with God and access to him. In Romans 5, verse 6, he says, while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. In Romans chapter 6, verse 18, he says, you're not a slave anymore. You're not a slave of sin. You're a what? A slave of righteousness. You're not a slave to sin. In Romans 8, verse 1, he tells us that we are no longer condemned There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he tells us. In Romans 8, verses 15 through 17, he he says that we're actually adopted. So it's not like the Lord saves us and then says, yeah, I forgive you, now get out of here, like I'll put you in a corner somewhere. No, no, he, he welcomes us into his household as a son and as a daughter. And in that passage, Paul says that we are co heirs with Christ. Meaning what? Meaning that the inheritance that Christ receives, we're also partakers of that inheritance. It doesn't even feel right to say that out loud, does it? And yet, this is the the great lengths that the Lord has gone to, to save us, adopted. Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And in Romans chapter 11, you guys maybe turn back one page there. This is right before Paul beseeches us by the mercies of God to be a living sacrifice. He says this in Romans 11, 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid him? For of him, and through him, and to him, are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. So Paul gets to the end of this section, magnifying the grace of God, magnifying the gospel. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Like he's magnified. Lord, you're so smart. 
You're so wise. How, how would it even come into your mind to save us in such a crazy, amazing, awesome way? I would not have even thought to ask the Lord to do that. And yet, this is what the Bible declares is true. That even while you were still a sinner, God did not want to leave you in that state. And so he came up with a plan to save you. And how did he do that? He sent Jesus to take the penalty for your sins and my sins. He did all the work. He did all the heavy lifting. And now he says, so just take it. (laughs) Receive it by faith and you'll be saved. You don't work for it. You receive it like a gift. And it's only after all of that that Paul then says, and now, As a response, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercy of God, to be a living sacrifice. This is actually the pattern throughout the New Testament. The apostles would lay down doctrine and teaching and say, this is what the Lord has done. And it's only after that doctrine and teaching is established that they then say, and now here's how you should respond to it. But it has to be that way. Because it cannot be that I am going to be a living sacrifice to get to God. It's not that way. I don't work for it. That's what makes grace, grace. Grace is grace because it's an undeserved gift that I'm accepting by faith. And so I can be a living sacrifice only as a response to what the Lord has already done for me. Only as a response. And so as you consider the Lord, as you consider what he's accomplished for you, as you think upon your life and your salvation and your justification. I beseech you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. As a response. Not as a, I'm apprehending God's favor by this. No, no, no. We're responding to his favor that he's already shown Not, I'm working to get my salvation. No, if you've come to faith in Christ, you already have salvation. There's nothing that you can do that's going to make you more saved than you are today. As a response, I offer my life to you, Lord. As a response, Lord, I'm devoting myself to you. And what other response is more appropriate? As you consider the the great length to which the Lord went to save you personally, what other response? Response is more appropriate than for me to turn around and say, okay, Lord, you can have it all. I surrender. I give everything to you. Paul says at the very end of verse one, this is our our reasonable service. Um, Maybe your translation says that it is our spiritual worship, service and worship. You could interchange those words. But, But which is it? Is it service or is it worship? Well, it's both. Service is worship. Worship is service. We worship the Lord through service, not just in song. We worship him by by serving him. And in fact, this word is interesting because it is used elsewhere in the New Testament, not too many times, but um, in the uh, book of Roman, or the book of Hebrews, this word is used a couple of times, but it's only used in the context of the priests serving in the temple. And as well, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, um, you read in, I believe it's Deuteronomy and Leviticus, this word is used again, but it's only used in the context of temple service, temple worship, the priests serving the Lord. 
uh, in the temple. And so here we are in the New Testament, and um, you might be thinking to yourself, well, we don't, we don't have a temple. Is that true? That's not true, actually. Where's the temple now? It's you and me. It's you individually, and it's us collectively. We are the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And not only are we the temple, the Bible also says in 1 Peter that we're the priests as well. 1 Peter 2.5, You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to do what? to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Are there sacrifices in the New Testament? Oh, yeah, there are. There absolutely are. Looks different, though, doesn't it? Whereas in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, they would present bulls and goats and lambs, and uh, what would they do? Well, they would bring them to the altar and, right, they'd kill them. They would offer dead sacrifices. They they would kill them. Um, They were not living sacrifices. But here in the New Testament, the call is different. The sacrifices are different. You are, in fact, the sacrifice. You, as a priest, are offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But the difference is, is that you're not offering a dead sacrifice. You're offering your own life as a living sacrifice. He says to be presenting your bodies daily, presenting your body before the Lord, saying, Lord, whatever you want, whatever service you want, whatever call you have on my life, whatever person you want me to share with, whatever way you want me to serve, daily presenting myself before the Lord and surrender and sacrifice and giving myself over entirely to him. Yet there wouldn't be one aspect of my heart that remains unsacrificed or unsurrendered. You know, as you think about the Old Testament, there were a number of different offerings that they could give to the Lord. One of the offerings, some of the offerings, they would give it to the priest, and then the priest would be able to take some and eat it, and then the person offering the sacrifice would be able to take some home and and partake of it. There was a sacrifice, though, called a burnt offering where you couldn't do that. You took the whole thing and you offered it up on the altar and you burned it as what? This is unto you, Lord. And it would say that the the aroma would would rise up as a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. You guys ever, you know, it's almost springtime and people are going to get out their grills and you walk outside and you're like, oh, man, what are they cooking? That smells good. That's probably what the temple smelled like, (laughs) you know, like just a big barbecue taking place. The Lord's like, I like the smell of your sacrifices. You know, and I wonder if Paul had in mind that burnt offering as he was saying, be a living sacrifice. Your whole life devoted and consecrated and given over to service and worship of your king. And that's what it means to be a living sacrifice, that the entirety of our lives would be devoted in service to the Lord. You know, as I was studying for this, I was reminded of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. He has this incredible experience where it says that he was before the throne of God, and he says, I I saw the Holy One enthroned. The train of his robe filled the temple with glory. Just the train of his robe that filled the temple with glory. 
Um, and the angels were flying around the throne, calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah cries out, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And then there's this interesting thing that happens with the coal. You have to go back and read it, I'm paraphrasing. And he's cleansed. And, and then the Lord says, who's going to go for us? Who's going to go out for us and, and be a witness to the nation of Israel? And what is Isaiah's response? Oh, pick me, <laughs> right? I'll go. I'll do whatever you want. Here I am, Lord, send me. He's like, Lord, whatever it is, as I, as I realize who you are, you're the Lord of hosts. You're the Holy One. Just the train of your robe is filling the whole temple with glory. Lord, what other response is appropriate than for me to say, here I am, God, send me. He didn't even fully understand, uh, it's his Old Testament, the, the benefits of our salvation. And so as we consider who our God is, the work he's done in your life, what other response is appropriate than to say, Lord, here I am. I offer myself to you. I'm giving myself over completely to you as a sacrifice. Pick me, Lord, here I am, whatever it is. I want to be involved in it. I want to do what you're telling me to do, Lord. I am a sacrifice unto you. When the Apostle Paul was in prison, he was writing a letter to the uh, Philippians. And in this letter to the Philippians, he's kind of saying, like, I'm not really sure if I'm going to live or die in jail. And he says this amazing thing in Philippians 1, verses 20 and 21. He says that with all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ will be magnified in my body whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, this is what I want. I don't have a firm grip upon this life, whether I live or die. Doesn't make a huge difference to me. Here's what I want, Christ to be magnified. For to me, to live is Christ, but if I die, I'm going to heaven. I'm gonna be with him face to face. And so use your body as a sacrifice unto the Lord. Here I am, Lord. Whatever you want, whatever way I can serve you and worship you and surrender to you, I offer everything to you, Lord. There is not a cost that is too high for me to give to you that I would be unwilling to give as I consider everything that you gave to me. As I consider the cost of my salvation. As I consider, we're gonna celebrate communion this morning. As I consider your body that was broken and your blood that was spilled out. Lord, what other response would be more appropriate than for me to say, you can have everything. I give it all to you, Lord. Notice there in verse one, Paul says that you present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. The kind of offerings the Lord desires is a holy and acceptable offering in the Old Testament, you could not bring to the Lord just any sacrifice that you wanted. The Lord was very specific, wasn't he? Uh, in fact, the Lord would go so far as to say, I don't want your, your blind lambs. You know, I don't want your crippled lambs. I don't want the lambs that you were just going to get rid of anyway. In fact, bring me the best. Bring me the first fruits of your crops. Bring me the best of your flock. And sacrifice that to me. Don't just give me the leftovers. Uh, in Deuteronomy 15, verse 21, the Lord said this to them as he was laying this principle out there. He said, if there's any defect in it, 
That is the sacrifice, if it's lame or blind or has any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. The Lord is like, I don't want those. I don't want the ones that you're just going to get rid of anyway. No, if it's a sacrifice, then it, it needs to cost something. And so give me the best. And as you read through the Old Testament, you get to the very last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the Lord rebukes them for this very thing. Read with me. I think it's up here on the screen. In Malachi chapter 1, verse 18, the Lord says, when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? When you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? And I love this. Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? He's like, offer it to your boss. Like, oh, gee, thanks for this blind lamb. <laughs> you know, thanks for this crippled. Like, he's like, they wouldn't be pleased by that. Like, why do you think I'm pleased by it? And then jumping down in Malachi 1 to verse 14, he says, But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. It's like, if your governor is not going to be pleased by it, I'm a great king. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And the Lord desires from our lives those holy and acceptable sacrifices. Don't be afraid to give to the Lord your very best. The best of your time. The best of your effort and energy. The best of your work. Don't be afraid to give to the Lord the best of your purity. The best of your love. The best of your energy and resources. Give to the Lord the best. And listen, we serve a gracious king and we offer imperfect sacrifices all the time. And so we're going to not do this perfectly at all times, but purpose in your heart, Lord, I want to give you the best of me. You know, if, 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 if I offer to my boss half-hearted work, he's not going to be pleased by that, right? Let's not offer to the Lord half-hearted worship and sacrifice. No, the Lord is a great king. He's a great king who's gone to the farthest lengths to make sure that you could be saved and loved and in his fold. And as a response to that, let's offer him the best of us. And we often think to ourselves, well, and this is, by the way, me. So if you're in this boat with me, then I'm not pointing a finger at you. I'm pointing a finger at me, okay? We often have the mentality of, well, I don't want to give too much. Like, when is enough enough? I don't want to give too much of my time. I don't want to give too much of my resources. I don't want to be too radical. You know, I don't want to be out there like, like those crazy people. Like, I want to serve the Lord when it's convenient. Oh, but if it's a convenient service, is it really a sacrifice? Everything, a burnt offering. We have the mentality, well, I want to serve the Lord, but I don't want to get burnt out. And you know, the, the issue of burnout, it's, it's a real thing. It happens. I'm not saying that it, it doesn't happen, but I believe that burnout happens not because we're being a living sacrifice. I believe that burnout happens for a number of other reasons. Maybe burnout happens because you're trying to do something that the Lord didn't call you to do. 
Or maybe the Lord has called you to a specific work, but you're trying to do it in your own strength and it's burning you out. And you need to go and receive strength from the Lord. Maybe you're getting burned out because you're trying to meet somebody else's expectations that they're placing upon your life and it's not what the Lord is telling you to do. And so you're trying to meet, you know, people please and meet their expectations. So, so burnout is a real thing. But um, so, so don't think that I'm trying to diminish that when I say this next thing. Don't use burnout as an excuse to not be a living sacrifice. Don't use the fear of burnout as an excuse to not serve the Lord. You know, burnout is not a biblical term. You're not going to find it in the Bible. You're not going to find that in the Bible. Do you know what term you will find? Poured out. Poured out. Paul says in, actually in a number of places, but 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul says, I am being poured out as a drink offering. And my time of departure is at hand. You think of the drink offering. What, what was taking place? You're just dumping that whole thing out, every last drop. And so let's not be afraid to be poured out as a living sacrifice before the Lord. We don't want to get burned out. We want to do the things that the Lord is calling us to do and the power and strength that the Lord is calling us to do that. But he's calling you. He is calling you to serve him. He is calling you to be poured out. He is calling you to be that living sacrifice. And so don't be afraid to offer to the Lord a holy and acceptable sacrifice, the best of you, the very best of you. And don't forget that Paul ends this section by, by saying to us that this is reasonable. It's our, it's our reasonable service. Like, why wouldn't we do it? Jesus has given everything. Why wouldn't I all in turn give everything to him? I'm reminded of that, that old hymn that we always sing. It's Jesus paid it all. So what? All to him I owe. Well, let me move on here into verse 2. He says, and do not be conformed to this world, but... Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we're not looking to be conformed to the world. We're looking to be transformed by Christ. Um, to be conformed to the world, I like the way the New Living puts it. It says, don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world. Listen, the world has a way. The world has a way of thinking and, and behavior that we are not to mold ourselves after. And, and this is something that we always need to be on guard of because we're sinners by nature. And it's easy to become conformed to the world. We need to be continually fighting against this. And so Paul says, don't be conformed. Instead of being conformed to the world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This word transformed is an interesting word. And I'm not going to butcher the Greek pronunciation for you, so you can just get that out of your minds. But I just want you to know that this, is, this word transformed is where we get our English word metamorphosis from. Metamorphosis. It was used of Jesus when he was transfigured or transformed on the mount. Um, but when we think of metamorphosis, what, what do we commonly think of? Well, the the caterpillar going into the cocoon and struggling for a little bit and then coming out as a butterfly, right? Like, it's a beautiful picture. Okay, that should be you. That should be me. 
That should be us, that we were once this way. I was once conformed to the world. I was once a sinner. I was once an angry, lustful sinner. That's who I was. And as, as I've encountered the Lord, he brings about metamorphosis, transformation. As you think about a caterpillar being changed into a butterfly, I mean, that's a pretty obvious drastic change, right? Like if you put a butterfly, if I didn't know about metamorphosis and the cocoon and all of that, if you put a butterfly next to a caterpillar, you would never know that they were one time the same. You never know. They're different in form, appearance. They're different in function, right? They're they're different all around in, in every possible way that you could think. And again, when you come to Christ, he changes you. He transforms you. He changes the way you look, the way you think, the way you act, and he changes the function of your life. You're on a completely different trajectory. How does this transformation take place? Sounds good, right? I want that. I I want that transformation. He says it happens by the renewing of your minds. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do we renew our minds? Well, let me just first say this. You want transformation? You want to be a living sacrifice? Well, you you want to not be conformed to the world? That's not going to happen apart from changing a complete way that you think. The renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. The war that rages for your personal holiness and purity and transformation in Christ, that war rages on the battlefield of your mind. And it's fought there. It's won there. It's lost there. And so be transformed. How do we renew our minds? There's an interesting passage in Ephesians chapter 5, and Paul is expressing this beautiful picture of husbands and wives. And he says to the husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church. And then he begins to talk about some different ways that Christ loves the church as an application for husbands. But um, it's in this context that I want, I want to read these few verses because Paul is talking about this is how Jesus loves us. So Ephesians 5, verses 26 and 27, he says, Love your wives as Christ loves the church and laid himself down for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. The washing of the water with the word. Do you know that when you are engaging with the word of God, you're not just hearing it, you're listening, you're you're also doing it, that this has a cleansing effect upon our life? It cleanses us, cleanses our minds, it washes our minds, it renews our minds, actually. I taught this last week to the high schoolers and I said, Something like, you know, we understand this physically. You don't just shower once a month. Well, maybe some of you do, but you should shower more, right? You should shower more than once a month. You should probably shower every day. Like, we're in the 21st century. Like, we should do this. It's fine. Um, You want to be cleansed? You want to get the dirt off of you? Okay, that's the same way that the word acts. It's It's like a shower that's cleansing you cleansing your minds, cleansing your thoughts, renewing, refreshing you, convicting you, teaching you how to walk with the Lord. And listen, when when you come to a passage of Scripture that confronts a way that you're living or thinking, the Word of God is not the thing that needs to change. You need to change. 
You need to change. You need to allow it to cleanse you and to renew your thinking. And once that happens, what? Metamorphosis. A different creature. A new creature. Walking in the fullness of what Christ has called you to walk in. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That as we're transformed, we're going to be proving something. What will you prove? God's way is the best way. That's what you'll prove. That his will is good and acceptable and perfect. I I think that we often, when we think of full surrender and sacrifice and being transformed, there's a little spike of fear in our hearts of like, well, what if I don't like the outcome? What if God comes in and messes up my plans and messes up my dreams? What if it's not a good thing? Do you know what Paul says will happen when we allow this transformation to take place? He says the opposite will happen. You're going to prove that God's will is good and perfect and acceptable You're going to be proving that God's way is the best way. Might he come in and mess up your plans? I hope he does. (laughs) I hope that he does mess with us and mess up our plans because for so long we've had a way of thinking and a way of doing things that must change and bow to Jesus. Bow to the cross. Bow to what he's called you to, a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable. Be transformed. Let it happen. I can think of no better way to end this message than to share in communion with each other. To consider all that Christ has done for us. And so, uh, you know, our brothers are going to come forward. A song will play and they're going to hand out the communion. It's two cups stacked. Go ahead and take both of them. But just as we're worshiping, I would invite you to remember the Lord. Think upon your salvation and the great work that he has brought forth in your life and what it cost him. I would also encourage you to present yourself afresh to the Lord as that living sacrifice. Maybe there's been some things in your life recently that's like, I've been messing up, I've not been doing that. We serve a gracious God and there is repentance and there is forgiveness and it is so freeing and wonderful and beautiful. Take time to do that and then share with us in communion. Remembering the work of the Lord in your life. So Lord, we love you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your work in my life. Thank you, Jesus, that you didn't just leave me. You didn't just leave me to die in my sin in the place of wrath before you, Lord. You've accepted me in the beloved. You've you've made me your son. I'm a co-heir with Christ. And, And Lord, what other response is appropriate? There's no other appropriate response but then to say, Lord, have it all. Take all of me. So Lord, I pray that we each would just be touched this morning as we remember you and as we share in communion together. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, our brother.